0: Whatever the digital may be, and I think we will probably also have some discussion on that, as we have already also asked about some of the other concepts we're using. But whatever the digital may be, on the face of things, it's not quite intelligible why theologians, of all people, um, should have something to say about that, assuming that theologians deal with uh, eternal religious truths Um, and this is a very recent and technological phenomenon, so it's clearly out of the range of our expertise. But why do Feuilletons and so many media outlets and the language of both tech optimists and dystopists uh, resonate so much with theological language? They talk about the all-seeing eye of Google or the Chinese social credit system. They talk about dataism as if it were a religion. They talk about a data priesthood and so many other metaphors and and images that are quasi-theological. Presumably, often such um, invocations are rhetorical, dramatizing hyperboles in order to critique frightening powers that need to be contained. But surprisingly, and this is kind of my starting point, many of the questions that are raised around database surveillance seem to be variations on themes that Christian theologians have been talking about for centuries. If someone knows everything about you, how does that impact your freedom? Could be kind of a way of summing up some of these questions. Um, That seems to be a common theme between theological discussions concerned with divine omniscience and debates we're having today about data-driven superhuman knowledges. And I've given some examples. So we might ask today, (coughs) do we want intelligent machines to track all of our movements, purchases, conversations, and behavior? And we read in the Psalms, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Where shall I go from your spirit? Whither shall I flee? Today we may may ask, to what extent does database targeted advertising manipulate our behavior, desires, even our political choices? And Calvin used to ask, how does divine providence guide us and steer our actions and fate? in mysterious ways according to a divine plan. Or today we might ask, can algorithms read our mind and predict our behavior? And Boethius wondered already a long time ago, (coughs) if God knows everything from eternity, can or how can my choices be considered free? So theologians have been wrestling with some of these questions for centuries, if not millennia, and they have developed sophisticated discourse structures around them. And if it is true that digitization is in some ways comparable to divine omniscience, and in what ways will have to be specified, of course, then it is just possible that some of the thought theologians have developed might be helpful to discern important issues and lay out structures for thinking through them. And the point of comparison that I'm picking up on between the mind of God and the digital is its world duplicating character. In one of the most recent sociological analyses of digitization, Armin Nasehi defines the digital as, quote, simply the duplication of the world in the form of data with the technical possibility of connecting data with each other in order to retranslate them to particular issues. And Nasehi sees its unspecificity, its universal applicability to paradoxically be the particularity of the digital And he says, this is a characteristic which, up to date, had been reserved for the presence of God and the use of writing. So this comparison may surprise in the first instance, but the point here is that the digital is less a particular specific technology or technological innovation like the steam engine, the airplane, the telephone, and not even like a very general technology that then underlies so many others like, electricity, instead it's more like other translations or duplications of the world into discrete discourses, like money, like language, and like the mind of God. And we have theologies who think of God's knowledge as the perfect representation of all that is, all possible data, so to speak, and all meaningful relationships. And this would then basically be the perfect data double Um, of the world towards which digitization can only aspire. So more than money or language even, divine omniscience might be a strong conceptual parallel for the digital. And from this starting point, I argue in my paper that some of the thought that has been developed about divine omniscience can be helpful tools or outlines for thinking through issues of the digital. And I this is what you get by being the organizer. You get to break the, uh, the rules. So I took the liberty because I felt like I need so much, so many steps to get my way to the point that I, was, I had to make, or I wanted to make, that I wrote two papers, but I'm not going to give two talks or like a double-length talk. So um, I'm just going to quickly um, get through the first two points, and then probably we're going to discuss more the third about privacy and all that uh, today but first what I call the objectivity fallacy. Um, Digitization as datafication is in some ways the epitome of propositional knowledge. It renders truth claims in the simplest conceivable propositional form with a binary truth value option, one or zero. And from discussions about divine omniscience, we can learn that a propositional form of knowledge is neither an ideal or an objective form, but quite a reductive way of knowing. Its form may have more to do with our human limitations than with divine perfections. So while the perfection aspect may not be the necessary um, quality aspired by digital versions of knowledge, it can still be helpful to elucidate uh, the indirect and interpretive character of all data against the tech optimists' aspirations that with enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, probably everyone in this room as people who are working in the humanities would have a little more skeptical approach than that, but it's um, a tale we often hear. So this was my first point, and that digitization is not necessarily then objective um, knowledge. It has always an interpretive quality. But then additionally, I want to make the point that it's also not neutral. Um, in the sense that it alters the reality which it only pretends to represent. And this is, I think, the second thing that we can learn from theological discussions of omniscience is how intricately power and knowledge are intertwined. Knowledge is not just an instrument of power or a neutral representation of things um, that can then lend some power, but power, also the reverse way, power affords knowledge brings forth knowledge, and this knowledge has world-making power. And in the doctrine of God, God's power is such that God's knowledge of the world must not at all depend on the world itself. Instead, it issues directly from God's power. (coughs) So either God knows the world because God um, knows God's mind um, about what God wills to create from eternity, or God's knowledge even causes the world to come into existence. Reality here is the effect, and not the cause of God's knowledge. And obviously, um, the digital does not quite operate at the same level here. But we can see similar intertwinement of knowledge and power. So where non-objectivity pointed to the inevitable um, interpretational nature of digitization, non-neutrality now points to its real-world effects. What Foucault would have called its productivity, and what I have termed its world making character. So the digital is then not just a layer of interpretation over the world, but it expands it by creating a shadow world, a duplicate. And then this duplicate crosses over into the real world all the time. We have already talked about online and on life, for example. Um, It does so in that, it does so in the artifacts that it produces within this world, which then produce further relationships. It creates facts as facts, provides the means of access to reality, and presents it in a particular way upon which then actions and decisions are based. So the digital becomes a duplication of the world which proceeds to give a, the real world its specific shape. And the more the shadow world grows and grows by accumulating more data, the more its real-life impact grows. And of course, these uh, real-world effects can be judged as morally good or morally bad or neutral, and many people tend to think of technology as fundamentally neutral, but this assumes that they're merely tools that can be added or taken away, but would not really structure the fabric of reality, and we have already heard from the uh, talks also in the previous session that this instrumental view of technologies is too short sighted. I want to build on, I give a variation of that and argue that the technologies we use also change a lot of other things, and this makes them fundamentally non neutral because they bring forth the conditions of possibilities which in, within which we then later decide what we should co- uh, call good or bad. So, just like God's knowledge um, gives the specific shape of the world within which we then decide what is good and what is bad. So theology can help us understand that technology is neither good nor bad nor is it neutral and it can push us to examine more closely the precise ways in which it is not neutral. And this, um, or one of them, which is then my third and most important point is the agnosticism with regard to concrete individuals um, upon which the condition of possibility of self-determination seems to hinge. So this is the third thing that I think theology can teach us. The concern with privacy, data protection and self-determination vis-a-vis digital surveillance is at least short-sighted because it misunderstands the nature of predictive analysis. As stated for theological reasons, Classical theists have been very careful not to base divine omniscience on God's interaction with an observation of the concrete actual world and its concrete actual individuals. And Luis de Molina came up with an ingenious way to think about omniscience, which has become known as middle knowledge. And just to rehash that briefly, um, crudely put, God knows not only necessary truths, think logic, and contingent truths, think things that would be the case after, God's cre- uh, after God has decided to create them. God also knows counterfactuals of human freedom. That means what any creature would do under any set of circumstances. And because, say, God knows what all possible Peters would do in all possible worlds, in all possible situations, um, God then decides to actualize this specific world in which this specific Peter makes this specific decision. So thus, God knows what Peter will do even before Peter has done it um, and can hold Peter accountable for it. In fact, we may even say that God sets Peter up to do precisely what he will do even though Peter's decision is still free. That's the Molinist solution. When I say that God's middle knowledge is agnostic with regard to the actual reality of the concrete individual, Um, I mean that God's knowledge of the concrete individual does not depend on its actual existence and having taken the decision in question, and precisely in this way can God make predictions for them. This may seem like a very speculative metaphysical concept or construct, but with middle knowledge, I want to claim Luis de Molina basically invented the principle of data analytics before having the technology for it prediction of concrete cases based on a statistic typology. Surrendering the world in the form of data serves the purpose to facilitate the detections of pattern in it, relations of probability and distribution. Big data is less about the sheer quantity of data than about the capacity to search, aggregate, and cross-reference large data sets. When earlier forms of surveillance would primarily have targeted an individual and followed them around, The digital is fundamentally agnostic with regard to concrete individuals. It is only interested in what Deleuze called the individual. It discerns patterns that emerge across a range of individuals and creates statistical groups. It creates typologies and labels under which then subsequent data can be filed independent of its origin with a concrete individual. To put it differently, big data creates the possibility to know what a range of possible Peters have done to know what a possible uh, what a range of possible Peters have done in a range of possible circumstances, and can then predict what any particular Peter would do in any particular set of circumstances. Um, as an example, in my paper, I describe how the My Personality app was used to predict personalities of concrete individuals on the basis of a trove of publicly available profile information. And the second example I give is the mental health prediction um, that was done based on the analysis of of Instagram photo filters. So, through the lens of middle knowledge, these cases show why privacy, in the sense of protecting my individual data from surveillance, would not help me as a concrete individual to escape the predictive power of the machine or the way. or to escape the way the so generated knowledge could be used against me. So here are the two reasons why data protection approaches fail. The first is we don't understand our data. We have no idea what kind of information could be inferred from the data we voluntarily submit. Therefore we have no way of protecting what we want to protect, even if we tell say a data agent not to give out a specific kind of information. So we may be protecting Specific information like our gender, our sexuality, um, but it might still be predicted from seemingly unrelated data. I might be deliberating whether sharing my family pictures could be problematic for people to recognize my children, but I cannot predict that an undiagnosed pre- uh, depression would be predicted from the picture <coughs> I used. I may deliberate not to disclose my sexual orientation on Facebook but it might be predicted on the basis of my taste in music. And I wouldn't know how to um, find out. And no one could find out, because that's the genius of these algorithms, that they find out before you're able to know it. So this is the first problem. And the second problem is, um, and here the um, parallel with middle knowledge is even stronger, that the knowledge about us is not based on us. We have no way of protecting ourselves against predictions on the basis of other people's data. So predictive modeling, just like middle knowledge, is not based on us as concrete, actual individuals. We can also not protect ourselves against it by protecting our individual data. God knows what Peter would have done because God knows what any Peter would do in any situation. The predictive model knows what I will do based on what a host of other individuals who in significant enough ways are similar to me, have done. So the protection of my personal information will not merely be costly or difficult to implement technically, it will also be utterly ineffective to protect myself from being known. And a third problem emerges, um, which is as in the case of divine omniscience, that the knowledge about us is not neutral to us. It actually produces us as individuals out of the statistic type it assigns to us. The statistical prediction is imputed to concrete individuals, and I'm thinking of the forensic model that Florian um, invoked earlier. Then we are treated according to what our data doubles are known to be like, even before or apart from who we actually are. And then the question is, what is scarier, if they actually get our type right or not? um, thinking about Kate, uh, posing as a masculine car lover on, um, Twitter. Um, as in middle knowledge, our decisions may still be free, but it may not actually matter because we are treated as the type that we're seen to be and decisions about us may be taken on the <clears> basis of this. For example, in the Instagram case, our health insurance rate might go up or people would not hire us based on the prediction about our mental health regardless of the fact whether we actually have this mental health issue or not. So in this sense, it becomes a not only a prediction in a statistical sense, but also the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, or at least a self-reinforcing cycle, as has been amply demonstrated in the case, for example, of racial bias and predictive policing. So I hope that these Three points would substantiate the main thesis of my paper, which is, again, that the thought theologians have produced about divine omniscience over the centuries might actually help us to ask the right kind of questions vis-a-vis the development of digital types of superhuman knowledge, or at least provide some helpful inroads. In concluding, I would like to offer one thing that I think or I hope theology should actually learn in return from predictive modeling, and one thing that theology might have to offer Um, our digital society. First, in talking about divine omniscience, we might also as theologians have to move beyond simply establishing that the individual's actions and decisions are still free in the sense of not being determined by God's eternal knowledge. While that may be technically true, um, the way we see predictions play out in real life and statistic modeling um, the question remains what such an abstract concept of freedom might, what difference would it make in our life and whether it fails to address some of the other important questions. So also insights that we gain, for example in this case from predictive modeling might challenge us to reassess our theological conceptions about whether they're asking the right kind of questions. But then um, maybe what theology can offer in our digital age <coughs> We may be more than ever in need to hear the gospel that we are not the sum of our past, our deeds, and our statistical correlations. And theology teaches us that we are allowed to be something other than what can be and has from eternity been predicted that we are, based on who we have been, based on our circumstances, based on the categories and typologies we are subsumed under. Against the merciless powers of predictive world making, Christians believe in a new creation by grace. Thanks.